Good morning, Chapel Hill. A special warm greeting to our brother Joseph. I always love it when Joseph is here. I love his prayers, and uh, and I'm jealous of his voice. Someday I'm going to hit puberty, and I'll have a voice that sounds like that, deep and resonant and wonderful. Instead of me, squeaky. We spent the last few weeks talking about what it means to be a church that is really for our kids. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about what it means to be a, a church where the people speak blessing into our children's lives. How our speaking of words, the power of our words lifts people, lifts our kids, helps them to, to soar in ways that otherwise they would not. I even taught you a, a little three-part blessing that we hear from the Father when he blesses his son Jesus. You, you belong to me. I love you. I am proud of you. Let's, let's repeat that. You belong to me. I love you. I am proud of you. And I know you're using this blessing because I've heard it. I've heard stories about it. I've heard you talking about how the way you're, how you're doing this with your kids at night and, and in different places. It's wonderful. But I think my favorite story I heard a couple of days ago. One mom, having heard this sermon, uh, she's been practicing this with her kids, and, and she took them to the bus stop and put them on the bus to head out to school. And as they, they climbed on the bus, she called out, I love you, and I'm proud of you. And her, eight, her five-year-old uh, got back into the door of the bus and called out to her, and don't forget, mom, you belong to us. <laughs> Great. Isn't that Awesome. Three weeks ago, I was in London with Pastor Ellis and, and Julie. We were uh, at an Alpha conference, and London being London, you walk a lot, which is great most of the time, but I, I want to show you a picture. Here's a picture of the sidewalk right outside of our hotel, and you'll notice that right there in the middle of the sidewalk is this little ledge that sticks up, and in the daytime, it's very obvious At night, when it's dark, when it's raining, not quite so obvious. We were walking back to the hotel from the restaurant. I saw someone coming from the other direction from that I knew from the conference. I raised my hand. I was calling out to them. I did not notice the death trap that was waiting for me. And I caught that curb and I fell. I fell hard. I went down arse over tea kettle, spectacularly hard. I am amazed that I didn't break something and end up in some socialized medicine hospital somewhere. <laughs> I ended up actually not hurting myself, but I embarrassed myself for sure because it was a very unexpected interruption to my journey. This morning, I want to take a look at what is really one of the most unexpected and disturbing uh, interruptions in the Bible. It happens to a guy named Abraham. You know the name well? Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. Abraham was a pagan who was called by God while he was still living in Ur of the Chaldees. God said to him, Abraham, I want to be your God. I want you to be my man. I want you to go to the the place that I'm going to show you. I'm not even going to tell you where it is. It's a surprise. But I just want you to trust me. and, And I'll tell you what I will do. I will make of you a great nation. A nation that I'm going to use to bless the whole world. Abraham said, okay, I'm in. The problem was, Abraham and Sarah were barren. They had no kids. 
And they weren't exactly spring chickens either. At the time of the call, Abraham was 75 years old. Sarah was 65 years old. And 25 more years passed and still nothing had happened. How is God going to make of Abraham a great nation if he can't give them one little baby? But finally, their miracle baby came. When Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, they got their miracle baby. And they called him Isaac. Isaac means he will laugh. But you can bet that there was a lot of laughter in that household. They were filled with joy as they saw God's promises beginning to be fulfilled. And they imagined the future for them. They imagined Isaac growing up and getting married and having kids. And then a few generations along the way, they would indeed become this great nation that would bless the entire world, just as God had promised. So Abraham was walking on air in this moment in his life until he hit a speed bump in the middle of his sidewalk that knocked him to the ground. Our... Scripture reading comes this morning from the book of Genesis, very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. It's a, it's a longer reading, but I really want you to listen to it, lean into it, because it is rich and hard and wonderful. All right? Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, 
the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now from this ancient and hard story? Would you speak to the life-giving truth that is ours to receive? Only through and by your Spirit. For we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. See what I mean when I say it's a hard story? You, you, you read that and you say, how could God ask such a thing? How, how could God ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? Especially since that son, in that son rests the future of the promise that God had made. How does that even make sense? Unfortunately, this was a very common practice. All of the nations surrounding where Abraham was, they practiced child sacrifice as the way that they worshipped their God. Worshippers of Molech, for instance, would build a fire inside of the hollowed out bronze statue of Molech with outstretched arms. And when the, when the arms were red hot, they would lay their babies on the arms of Molech. It was hideous. I think Abraham had assumed that Yahweh would be different. Apparently he was wrong. Apparently Yahweh also required the blood of children. So he wasn't necessarily surprised, but he was deeply disappointed. He had thought that this might be a different way, but apparently Yahweh was just like every other god. And still Abraham obeyed. And in one of the most gripping scenes in the Bible, we watch as this boy carries his own sacrificial wood on his shoulder up to the top of Moriah. We watch as Abraham builds an altar on the top of that mountain. We watch as Abraham binds his own son in ropes. And then we watch as Abraham raises his hand to slay his own son. And it is only then, only when his hand is up with knife in it, that God stops him. An angel of the Lord calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham. Notice he calls it out twice. He was a hundred years old after all. I mean, maybe the hearing wasn't so good. Wanted to make sure that he heard that. Abraham, Abraham, and he stops. And it turns out that God will not require a sacrifice after all. This was a test. The first verse says it was a test. It was a harsh test, though. But it was a test, an idolatry test. It was a test to see if Abraham loved and worshipped and trusted Yahweh more than anything in the world, even more than his beloved son. For the last four weeks, we have been saying that a church that does not prioritize children is a church that is on life support. We love and we evangelize and we nurture kids because Jesus loved kids. We draw children in the, into the midst of our church because Jesus drew a child into the midst of their gathering and said in his humility and smallness, this child is the greatest in the kingdom. We have learned that we tell our children uh, every day that God is the one true God and that we should love him with everything we have. Because the Shema, the greatest of Old Testament prayers, trains us to do this. Kids, kids, kids. We love them. We focus on them. We invest in them. But in this closing sermon on this series about kids, I feel compelled to offer this warning. We are called to prioritize our kids, not idolize them. 
There are unhealthy ways in which we can so focus on children that we will not only harm them, they will, we will damage the entire family, we can damage the church, we can damage the culture. There is so much for us that we can learn from this story that I read. I could preach an entire series just out of this story I read. But at the core is this principle. Nothing, not even our kids, is more important than our relationship with God. When we worship and adore anything or anyone else, including our children, more than we worship and adore God, that is idolatry. And I want to take a a look at a few ways that our children can become our American idols. And I'm planning on goring a few oxen today, and so just brace yourself. You idolize your children, for instance, when you make them the most important persons in your family. When you make them the most important persons in your family. Let me tell you, the most important relationship in that family is your marriage. Now, I realize that there are many who are single moms, single dads, and I applaud you. You are heroic what you are trying to do. And behind every divorce are terrible, broken stories. And I thank God for grace and mercy and second chances. But if you are still married, then you need to hear me say, that relationship must be the highest priority in your family. The greatest gift that you can give your children is for them to witness and find security and in your love and devotion for each other. But it is so easy for your spouse to play second fiddle when kids come along. For many families, children become the center of the universe around which everything rotates. But that is neither biblical nor is it healthy. Over the last 30 years in the United States, divorce in many categories has actually begun to drop. And yet, divorce among those who are 50 and over has doubled. Now, what happens at around the age of 50? Empty nest. Empty nest is what happens. The last of the kids leave home. The glue that held together many marriages and families is gone. And for many moms especially who invest in their kids, who find their value and their worth in their kids, their purpose walks right out the door. Your marriage is the sun in your family's universe. Your children are the planets that rotate around you. And they are held together by the gravitational force of your love and your relationship. Trust me on this. No child has ever said, I wish my mom and dad didn't love each other so much so they'd have more love and time left for me. It's never happened. So we idolize our kids when we make our relationship with them the most important in the family. We also idolize our kids when we make their activities, their sports or music or whatever, the center of our family life, often at the expense of our church life. Believe me, I know, today's sports world knows and cares nothing about Sabbath. There was a time when I was their age, when there were no games that were played on Sundays, because that was church day. In fact, we had a pass from Wednesday night practices, because that was considered a church night as well. No more. The primary focus of worship on Sundays, for many families, is the worship of sporting activities. Now, I want you to hear me. I am not a legalist on this. 
I realize that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their joyless misuse and abuse of the Sabbath. But if church, if the spiritual nurture of your children in our community is not a priority, it will always be displaced. It will always take second place. And listen, I know a balance is possible because I know families for whom their sports is a huge deal. And yet, church is a huge deal too. And they find a way to make it work. Especially when we now have a Saturday night service. You begin to run out of excuses. As I mentioned on my blog about the death of Kobe Bryant and the rest, the most remarkable and I think unreported aspect of this story was that on the, the morning of that crash, before they headed to their, his daughter's tournament, which he was coaching, they attended the 7 o'clock mass at their, children, their family's church where they received communion together. I know nothing about Kobe Bryant's faith, but the fact that this sports icon hauled his teenage daughter out of bed at 6 in the morning and took her to church before he took her to the tournament... I found that priority. I find that, that example of worship before sports to be inspiring. And I hope more, more parents pay attention to that. On another and related note, we idolize our kids when they dictate whether and where we go to church. One of our priorities at Chapel Hill is that our Sunday school, our Saturday evening children's programs, our youth programs, they will be exciting and inviting so that kids are pushing their parents out the door to get to church. But sometimes, in some seasons, kids decide they don't like church anymore. And when I hear parents say that it's too hard to come to church because their kids don't want to come to church, I want to say... And in fact, have been heard to say, do your kids like going to the doctor? Do your kids like going to the dentist? Do your kids like going to school? Who cares what they like? We insist on this because it is good for them, and that's what parents do. They're not clapping over here, but that's all right. This, this, is, this is for all of you. Some of you are clapping. I saw you. Beth Moore is, of course, a great Bible teacher. And she and her husband were asked one time, how do you, how do you get your junior high children to go to church? And her husband was the one that responded. He said, well, we get them out of bed and we put them in the car and we take them to church. It's not rocket science. We are still the parents, last time I checked, right? We also idolize our kids through our extravagance. If you are horrified at the idea of buying your kids' clothing at Target or at Costco because it doesn't have the right logo on it, if you cannot bear the thought of your children walking around in off-brand clothes, perish the thought... You might have a problem. And when we indebt ourselves or even impoverish ourselves in this mad chase after name brand status, it is doubly foolish. And as long as I'm going down this road, let me just double down here. 
If you take on crushing debt to send your kids to a university that you cannot afford, that falls into this same category. I am the proud product of Yakima Valley Junior College and Cal State Bakersfield. Go Roadrunners! And I graduated debt-free, and my education has served me just fine. Thank you very much. These recent Hollywood scandals in which celebrities lie and cheat so that their kids can go to more prestigious schools, it reminds us how foolish and how idolatrous this obsession can become. Here's another one. I could go on forever. (laughs) Here's another one. We idolize our children when their physical safety is more important to us than their spiritual safety. What do I mean by that? We, t- we Americans tend to prioritize the safety of our children, the physical safety of our children. And of course we should. That is part of our job. It is enormously important. But their spiritual safety, their spiritual vitality is way more important. It's eternally important. In a moment, we're going to dedicate our high school team to, to make their way down to Mexico. It is our 30th annual trip. We have been doing this for 30 years, since 1990. And we have brought every one of them back. So far. (laughs) But there are, of course, risks. There's always an element of risk any time we send someone out of country in mission. Every parent understands that. Every parent understands that they would be safer if we kept them in Gig Harbor. Safer if we kept them in our home. Safer if we kept them in bubble wrap. But they would miss out on the thrill and the eternally important experience of obeying and serving Jesus in his call to go into all of the world. Jesus never promised that it would be safe to follow him. You hear me? Jesus never promised that it would be safe to follow him. As a matter of fact, he promised just the opposite. But he did promise that he would be with us everywhere we went and that it would be good for us. A century ago, missionaries and their families would ship their belongings in coffins to their place of call because they expected to die there. Their obedience to the call of God was more important than the safety of their families. At the core of all of this, we idolize our children when they or anyone are more important to us than our relationship with God. And I know that sounds radical. Some of the stuff I'm saying might sound a little radical. But what do you mean when you say Jesus is Lord if not this? What do we mean when that Jesus is the Lord of our life if this isn't what we mean? That he is the most important person. That there's no one in our lives, including our children, including our spouse, who is more important than our relationship with him. And of course, when we honor him, when we love him, when we obey him, when we follow him, he delights in giving back to us all of these things that we have laid on the altar. He delights in giving to us a spouse that we will love and will love us back. He delights in giving us kids who we will enjoy and love and they will love us. He delights in giving all of those things to us. But if anyone, including your kids, is more important to you than God, that is idolatry. 
This Bible story about Abraham and Isaac on Moriah, it's kind of shocking, although it has a good ending. But the most shocking part of it actually is, is the hints of what would yet come. The most shocking part of it is the prophetic part of the story that occurred hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. It is the reminder that Yahweh only required human sacrifice one time, and that was of his own son, Jesus. Did you catch the glimpse of it in the reading? Did you catch the echoes of that which would take place the hundreds and hundreds of years later on a mountain called not Moriah but Calvary? I want you to listen to it again, kind of the stereo version back and forth between the Old Testament account and the gospel account. Listen and be reminded of what God was setting us up for back in Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they crucified him. Father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God's word amazing? The echoes that we hear then that would echo down through the centuries from Mount Moriah to Mount Calvary. The only thing more amazing about this story is this. On Mount Moriah, God reached down in his mercy and stayed the hand of Abraham before he drove the knife home. But on Mount Calvary, God watched as the executioner lifted the hammer The angels were poised, ready to spring at his command, to stay the hammer swing, to slay the swinger of the hammer. They waited for God's word to come, as it had on Moriah, but the word never came. And the hammer was swung, and the spikes were driven home, and God the Father did the unthinkable. He sacrificed his only son for you, And for me, that God, the one who loved us that much, is the only one worth worshiping. Let us pray. When we read the story, Lord, we are reminded how the cross of Jesus was not a surprise. It did not catch you by surprise. The death of your son was a plan. It was your plan from the beginning. And we see the hint of it in this story so many hundred years, hundreds of years earlier. The impossible choice that a father must face to take his own son or not. 
And God, we're so glad that Abraham didn't, that he wasn't required to do this, that you were a different kind of God. But it makes it all the more amazing that you would give your son. Your son would willingly walk to that cross to be executed in our place for our sake. How will we ever love you enough? How can we ever worship you enough? How can we ever praise you enough? How can we ever adore you enough? How can we ever exalt you enough? How can we ever glorify you enough for what you have done for us? We are astounded by your love. We pray that you would give us the courage then every time something else sneaks up on the altar of our life to be worshipped, God, give us the strength to sweep it off so that the only one in the place of worship in our lives is Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. Would you help us to live that way? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.